Welcome to the Best Player Wins podcast, where we believe that winning is winning, no matter by how little or by how much. We are your hosts. I am Nate Endries. Welcome back, Jake. We missed you last week. Thanks. It was good to be back. It was also, it's always fun for me to listen to the episodes because I don't listen to the ones that I'm on because I don't like listening to myself talk. Why? Listening to yourself talk is the best. I usually, not to hear myself talk, but because we're obviously recording this live, I don't know. I like to go back and listen to just hear what the finished product sounds like. So it sounds funny enough that like I experience this conversation for an hour to an hour and a half every week. And then I go back and spend another hour to hour and a half listening to the conversation that I was already a part of. But I don't know. I just like to see what the final product sounds like. So I guess we're a little different in that regard. But nonetheless, welcome back. We did miss you last week. I think you owe us an extra league history fact of the week this week but we will get to that later in the episode this week uh the new segment that we have for you is called risers and fallers our player edition of that segment pretty self-explanatory but we will go ahead and jump right in so that we can get to that jake from week seven did you have a biggest upset I did, and because we were kind of busting his chops all week with his, his team being down and him losing for most of the week, uh, I feel like I have to throw him some love. It's Jerwin over Brendan. Uh, Jerwin had a huge week this week for, for his team. He got huge weeks from Muncie and Winker on offense, and really his starters finally lived up to the hype. Um, after underperforming pretty much the entire year, he got 107 points across those five starter spots. And just like that, Jerwin is now only a game out of a playoff spot, and he is still alive in the playoff hunt. Yeah, how does the phrase go? Great minds think alike. Uh, it's got to be the it's got to be the matchup where the two and ten team beats the eight and four team, right? What I found pretty interesting about this matchup was that Jerwin arrived at his two hundred sixty eight total points by way of. 133 of those points coming from his offense and 135 of those points coming from his pitching staff. In particular, you mentioned Jaron got a huge performance from his boy, Jesse Winker, who scored 45 points and also big time performances from Max Muncie, who scored 31 and Lucas Giolito as well with 33 points, uh, much needed rebound for Lucas Giolito after he had a down start to the season so far. Uh, really, there wasn't some crazy storyline behind this matchup. Otherwise, it was pretty much just an upset upset where Jerry was able to eke out by seven points a win. Um, again, behind a strong performance from his team across the board, as I mentioned, a pretty even split between offense and pitching. And Brendan's team didn't even really underperform as he finished with one win on the week, beating out the league median. Uh, this was just a well-fought matchup between Brendan and Jerwin, and Jerwin grinded out the win. So that was my pick for biggest upset as well. Most shocking outcome, I'll just be the first to admit, Pine Run Market versus number one contender, Nick taking the matchup over me. Jake, you're a Pittsburgh sports guy. Have you ever heard of the many times that Andrew Filipponi on 93.7 The Fan has suggested that in the Tom Brady in New England era that the Steelers always looked at games against the Patriots as like, quote unquote, their Super Bowl. I, I have heard that one. Yeah, I think that's what we had a case of here with Nick ready to risk it all in our group chat. <laughs> but no, in all seriousness, I was expecting a close outcome, albeit not knowing which way the matchup would slide. I, I did say that I did. I expected it to be close last week. 
in the end, it was not close at all as my team underperformed and Nick's team showed up and, and did what it has for the past month now or more. And it looks like we're probably going to have a rematch of this brotherly rivalry in week nine. So not this coming week, but next week, unless Mike is able to unseat me this week as the third seed in the West division. Although I think that is pretty unlikely to happen. And I'll explain why a little bit later, that being Mike being able to beat me this week. So Jake, who did you have, if anything, among the matchups for your most shocking outcome? Uh, Just to touch on what you had just talked about. I, what I thought was really interesting about this one in particular was uh, your offenses were separated by half a point, but where Nick really outscored you was on was with his pitching. He outscored your pitching staff by 60 points, which is not something you really ever see, especially when you look on paper and you see the differences between the two pitching staffs. I mean, the starters that he had, I don't think I would have started. Maybe Trevor Rogers would have made it into your lineup, but I don't think that I would have had any single one of his pitchers take a lineup spot from yours. If I had the choice to start five guys and I was looking at both of your rosters. So I thought that was pretty interesting uh, how that shook out. But my, uh, my most shocking outcome was that the two of us did not make it on the winning side of the league median. And uh, you've already spoke a little bit about how your team struggled. I know that I, I goofed by leaving DeGrom in my lineup, uh, my team overall kind of my pitching staff, especially underperformed, but I also had Graveman take a zero. He apparently had COVID all week and they Mariners didn't put him on IL in time, but yeah, I don't think that's something you're going to see too often where two of the, two of the top teams don't make it on the, on the right side of the league median. So I thought that was definitely shocking. Yeah, it was shocking for sure. And I didn't actually work him into the episode, but I do think it's worth talking about. So I'm going to put you on the spot here, Jake. Zach Gallen is, is down with a UCL injury and I don't know that his, you know, his miracle healing powers are going to save him from this one. Usually I think I was kind of joking about this maybe a week or two ago in the group chat, but usually UCL injuries kind of a spell certain doom for pitchers. Cause they'll eventually lead to Tommy John surgeries. You know, if that were to, sh- I'm not going to condemn Zach Gallen to Tommy John surgery just yet, because who knows? But let's just say that that's the case with you having kept him. And I think it was what the fifth round this past year. Yeah, it was the fifth. What would be the plan with Zach Allen? Would you potentially try to hold on to him as a keeper? Would you, I mean, cause that would be coming at a fourth round expense and he would be out presumably for most of next season. Would you try to maybe fish the line, see if you could sell him as a keeper? Or would you think at that point, let's just say in the worst case scenario, he's not coming back until late July, early August of 2022 you just kind of cut base, cut bait and take your loss at that point. I know I'm putting you on the spot here, but I'm just curious as to your thought process there. Yeah, that's a tough one. It would depend on a lot of it would depend on the timeline because it's there. If he's going to be out most of next year, then you can't, he's not, you can't spend a fourth round pick on that. Sure. And I'm right there with you, to be honest, I just traded for him in a dynasty league, but I was, kind of paying a price to where I assume that he was going to need Tommy John surgery so that I wouldn't be disappointed if that, that is the case. Uh, but yeah, DeGrom being out, he's not going to be out for long-term. So I think you're okay there, but yeah, losing he's supposed Zach to start Gall- tomorrow. Okay. Yeah. Losing Zach Gallon, who I think, uh, I think it would be fair to say that he was your third best starting pitcher coming into the season. That certainly hurts no matter how strong the pitching rotation is. So Sorry to see that, of course, even though Jerwin joked that I was, you know, giggling 
watching you, your team <laughs> suffer an injury. But that brings us to the top three standings update. Not a whole lot of variation except for one change this week in the East Division, as it has been for a month now, probably more than a month. Jake is in first place. Jake's fantasy baseball team now suffering a defeat at the hands of you played Big Money Mike. Is that right? Yes. At the hands of Big Money Mike, Jake is now 12 and two. So he mentioned that he lost to the league median as well. He took two losses uh, and that was. His first taste of defeat all season. Uh, and then JC in second place, like he has been most of the season with a record of 11 and three. And then Nick went two and zero himself to climb to a nine and five record this week. And he is in third place in the East division in the West division. This is where our shakeup happened. And it wasn't really a major shakeup. Courtney is in first place as she has been for a while now. Team C Deemer with an 11 and three record. Brendan actually jumped me for second place with a nine and five record is what he has now. And he rebranded as the Soto shuffle in case you missed that in our group chat. And I faltered to an O and two finish last week, dropping me down to third in the West division, number one contender with an eight and six record. And I think I actually saw when I was prepping this last night, I have like a one point advantage over Mike and I think if you divide that out, because obviously our, our point totals are getting multiplied by two every week, I technically have less than a one-point lead in head-to-head matchups and scoring of an advantage over Mike to secure that number three seed as of right now. So this matchup between me and Mike this week is going to be pivotal, pivotal for that third seed. Be interested to, to watch that one. Our trade talk segment. Didn't have a lot go on this past week. We did have two trades, and they weren't necessarily small trades in terms of quantity, but there weren't any absolute studs that were moved from one team to another. So the first one we had was Brendan gave up Dylan Carlson, Denelson Lamette, and Tyler Anderson. Mike gave up Kenta Maeda and Javier Baez. Jake, Kenta Maeda is being tossed around like a bottle of crown. What did you make of this trade when you saw it go through? This is an interesting one. Uh, I have no idea what to think of Lamette. No clue how to value him. Uh, Tyler Anderson, he looks like he's coming back down to, down to earth a little bit lately. Uh, Dylan Carlson, the, the peripherals don't quite line up with what he's doing, but I, I still think he's okay. Out of all these players, I think Kent Maeda probably has the highest upside and probably the best chance of a rebound from the players who are struggling. I, don't, I know Javier Baez is a big name, but in this format, he's kind of a he's pretty close to a zero in terms of uh, being an impact player. So I think that I like Brendan's side a little more just because the upside with Maeda, I think makes it worth it. Uh, I, I don't think Lamette's going to reach any sort of ceiling this year. I don't think the Padres are going to stretch him out, but who knows? They've been kind of baffling with what they've been doing with them all year anyways. So they could surprise everyone and transition him back to a starter. Uh, yeah. I like Brendan's side a little more, I think. Yeah, I'm with you there. Not because I like in particular really any player in this trade. I I don't per se, but I do think that any time that you're able to kind of consolidate, for lack of a better term, some of your peripheral players for players who have a name, whether that be, you know, them actually playing it out and performing for you later in the season or you're able to turn around and use that name to land a bigger trade later in the season, which is what Brendan got in Javier Baez and Kenta Maeda. 
and essentially giving up three players that I think are a little bit lesser to get two of the bigger names. I think that that's not a big win, but at least some kind of a win. Um, Because as JC brought up, I think two or three times in last week's episode, roster spots in and of themselves are a valuable thing in fantasy sports. And when you're able to kind of turn... I don't know how to explain this. Whenever you're able to turn like a waiver wire pickup that you're not crazy about, but you also don't feel like you can drop at the moment into an open spot and upgrade it into two bigger names. I think that that's a win uh, just because not only again, do you have the potential of two bigger names to either rebound for you or to use later in the year, but you also have another open roster spot to play around with and pick up, you know, the hot hands of the week, which I really love the ability to do. And I get really nervous about it's kind of, it kind of sounds weird, but almost when you have too many good players, when you're in a situation where you don't feel comfortable dropping anybody on your team, I do not like to be in that position. And I don't know that Brendan was, but it certainly always helps to open up a roster spot. So I think just by way of me liking the name recognition, quote unquote, of the side that Brendan got in this deal, while also adding on to the fact that he did open up a roster spot, I give a slight edge to Brendan here, but I think overall in terms of just player to player value is a pretty even trade. Yeah, I did. I did want to say I did like that take by JC last week because, uh, you know, I got to listen to the episode. Um, but yeah, I, I liked it. I, I think that that kind of gets lost sometimes in three for twos, just the the value of the extra roster spot also being part of the trade. Yeah, Absolutely. The second trade of the week that we had, this one was a three for three. Nick gave up, you know, popular topic of the podcast so far this season, Mackenzie Gore. Also gave up Josh Bell and Adam Wainwright. And in return, Scott gave him Paul Goldschmidt, Wilson Contreras, and Garrett, I think it's Crochet, Crotchet. Yeah. I'm, I'm not totally sure. But it's Jake Crochet, was, but it would be much better if it was Crotchet. If it was Crotchet. What was your thoughts on this trade when you saw it go through? Uh, So my first thought was, all right, we get to talk about Mackenzie Gore again. That was my first thought. But uh, I I, kind of like, I I guess it's pretty even, but I do kind of like the potential that Scott got with Josh Bell. It looks like he's been turning it around a little bit lately. Uh, He's talked about how he's been working out a, a little bit of a swing change a little and the results over the past week were much better his strikeout rate was way down he's hitting the ball but he's hitting the ball a lot better I kind of like the turnaround potential for Bell and then I, I I know we've talked about the the potential with Gore as well uh I haven't really been keeping up too much with Paul Goldschmidt he's kind of just in my opinion he's just kind of another guy uh Wilson Contreras he's a good catcher but a good catcher is only only so valuable in my opinion he's not really he's a good catcher he's not a standout catcher I believe that's that uh I think is Garrett Crochet already back on waivers or is, was that some that I missed that? I believe he is. I think Nick dropped him very shortly after this trade was accepted. Okay. Yeah, so I, I do like the side. I think I like the side that, that Scott got a little more. I like I think that the upside's higher there. Yeah, I think this is a pretty even as even can get trade. I think both sides got what they are looking for. Nick was a seller early on. I think both through private conversations as well as through trades that he's made lately, it's become a little bit more clear that he kind of wants to become a buyer. 
Uh, so I think he got what he was looking for in the big names of Paul Goldschmidt and Wilson Contreras. Like you mentioned, not standout or elite players, but certainly startable players um, relative to what would be out there on waivers. And Scott got high upside with Mackenzie Gore. You're bigger on Josh Bell than I am, but you know he, he was an MVP caliber player for one half of 2019, which was only, what, 80 games ago. So, you know, certainly a lot of upside there. The biggest thing that I'm excited for about this trade is that I know that if I bring up any struggles of Mackenzie Gore in the future, Scott is not going to be hitting my text messages asking me why I'm trying to tear down Mackenzie Gore. He can take it. So I'm glad that Nick moved Mackenzie Gore to a different team, particularly to Scott, uh, because Scott will uh, – he won't give me any grief if, if I give his players some grief. So that is my take on that trade. Jake, let's talk about some risers and fallers. And I thought about doing some teams in this segment, but then I thought, well, we just did a standings deep dive pretty recently, and that kind of seems like it would be the same thing. So we just went with a player edition here. And again, risers and fallers, pretty self-explanatory, but to give you a little bit of an inside look into what our process was for this segment, we are specifically thinking in terms of trade value. So not just necessarily in performance, but like, you know, we went with one hitter and one pitcher whose trade value we think is rising. And then on the flip side, a hitter and a pitcher whose trade value we think is falling. So Jake, I'll let you lead us off. Who is your rising hitter? Rising hitter is someone that we had pegged as a bust before the season, J.D. Martinez. And uh, he looks like the stud of old. I mean, the X stats are all 90th percentile or better, and they are right in line with where he was uh, in before 2020. And his strikeout rate and walk rate, they're nearly identical to 2019. I think at this point, I would, I would be comfortable saying that 2020 was a, was a complete fluke year for him. It looks like he looks exactly like the player that we were drafting in the second and third round before last year. And while being DH only kind of limits his trade value, I don't think that like he, he is an elite, he's back to being an elite bat and you're all, you're, you are always going to have a market for that. Even, even though the utility only kind of limits him a little bit, but I, I love JD Martinez. I'm, I'm excited that, that he's back. So he's my, he's definitely my rising hitter. Yeah, I was totally wrong about J.D. Martinez when we were doing our bold predictions at the beginning of the season. But I, if you told me that J.D. Martinez was going to have a good season, I would not have expected it to this extent. So I can't even blame myself for making that bold prediction back then. My rising hitter is Chris Bryant, who is third base, left field, and right field eligible. And by the way, he's top five currently at all three positions that he is eligible in uh, in our league. Chris Bryant is having a huge comeback season. He is the number five third baseman, the number three left fielder who, or I should say, which the position of left field, JC and I mentioned how deep it was on last week's episode. So that's impressive in its own right. He's also the number five right fielder. Now, before I share these stats with you, Jake, and the rest of you who are listening, I want you to keep in mind that Chris Bryant was the National League MVP in 2016. However, KB is putting up career bests in barrel percentage, expected batting average, expected slugging percentage, weighted on base average, expected weighted on base average, 
expected weighted on base average on contact and walk rate. So essentially, Chris Bryant is getting on base more than ever before, and he is absolutely punishing the ball when those events come on batted balls. And this production isn't coming at the expense of anything either, since his strikeout rate of 23.9% is right in line with his career strikeout rate of 23.8%. Jake, I'd be remiss to say that Chris Bryant is back because even MVP Chris Bryant wasn't this good. You think he'll remain in MVP contention all season long? I do buy what he I do buy what he's doing. The only sort of concern I would have is if the Cubs traded him to kind of an unfavorable uh, unfavorable home home park. You kind of, I I buy into it too. But what I want to know from you, Jake, as his fantasy owner, you think that he has a chance to be in the MVP conversation all year because he certainly does so far, right? Yeah, I don't think, especially in the National League, there's not really. I mean, maybe, I guess you could say Acuna is sort of the, Tatis the favorite and Acuna. right now. Yeah, Tatis is having it. Like I know he's been. Yeah, well, he yes. has to get healthy first. But Yes, he does have to get healthy. Tatis did have a little bit of an injury stint, but I think I saw earlier today that he's on pace for like, if you extrapolated his pace out to 162 games, it would be like a 60-plus home run, 40-plus stolen base pace, which is just absolutely insane. If he misses any more time. All, go ahead. I think he's leading all hitters in points per game right now. So yeah, you're right, he's definitely up there. Yeah, Tatis would be he, – he can't miss any more time because you can only miss so many time and still be in contention for the MVP award. But if the time that he's missed so far this season is all that he misses, I think that, you know, alongside Acuna, Fernando Tatis is a given for National League MVP contention. But Chris Bryant certainly belongs up there with both of those guys as well for his production so far. He's been unreal to start the season. Jake, give me your rising pitcher so far in the season. All right, so this I chose Julio Arias, and I think everybody might have forgotten about his potential. It feels like he's been around forever, which he has. He debuted in 2016, which was forever ago, but he's still only 25 years old. This is a guy that was the the top pitching prospect before he came up. Uh, currently, he is the eighth overall pitcher. I'm not including Otani in that because Fantrax and it includes his hitting points with his pitching points. So it's not really, it's not really quite a comparison, but he's the, he's the eighth overall true pitcher. And I mean, I can't say anything else, but he has arrived. Uh, His peripherals back the breakout. It's the lowest walk rate of his career. The biggest problem with him for a while was just volume, but he's pitching deep into games. Now it looks like the Dodgers are starting to take the kid gloves off when they're they're, Then they're just kind of letting him go. So I have him now. He's he's in my top 15 at starting pitcher. He's my 14th overall pitcher, which is way up from where I had him. I didn't think that the Dodgers would let him go long enough. And I he definitely has also taken a step forward. I completely buy that this is this is a new he he's joined the ranks of the aces. Yeah, Julio Urias is broken out in a big way this year. I almost wonder how far Dustin may would have gone as well. Cause he was, those two were kind of breaking out alongside each other. Of course, their teammates in real life on the Dodgers, Dustin may went down and had to get Tommy John surgery because of a UCL blowout. But Julio Urias has been pitching like an ace this year. He's always been known to have ace upside. He's just been kind of treat, been treated with the kitty gloves by the Dodgers. 
but yeah, this year they are not, uh, they are not treating him with the training wheels. So it's exciting to see him realize his potential and also not be held back by his organization. Uh, Jake's rising pitcher, Julio Urias, my rising pitcher, Jake, you're going to like this segment because I chose Robbie Ray. Uh, he's, he's slightly more underwhelming on the surface since he is the number 40 overall starting pitcher. And I guess technically number 39, if it were excluding Otani, but I'm not sure that he would even be ahead of Otani, even if he took out his hitting points. So maybe he is starting pitcher 40, but yeah, after about a third of the way through the season, it's not really the whole body of work that I want to talk about in terms of what he's done so far on the entire season, but it's actually just his last six starts. He's pitched 37 and a third innings and has a ridiculous 49 to one strikeout to walk ratio. This is supported by his maximum velocity on the fastball this year, touching his previous career high of 98.8 miles per hour. And the thing with Robbie Ray is that he's always been a high strikeout pitcher. It's the control issues, i.e. walking too many hitters that have, hind- that have hindered him from being a good pitcher over the last few years. But good news for you, Jake, Robbie Ray is the number one most improved walk rate starting pitcher in baseball this year, cutting that walk rate down by 11.3 percentage points. And to put it into perspective, how big of an improvement this is, the number two most improved starting pitcher in walk rate has improved his walk percentage by 8.7 percentage points. So Robbie Ray improving by nearly three more percentage points than the next best guy in terms of most improved pitchers. And Jake, any guesses as to who this number two pitcher is right behind him? Uh, there's plenty of guys that that could be. Yeah, just give me your gut. Oh, boy. Oh, you're putting me on the spot now. Uh I'll give you a hint. Somebody that has displayed a similar skill set to Robbie Ray uh, in terms of talking about his last six starts. Is it Alex Wood? Not Alex Wood. It is Corbin Burns. Uh, Okay. So I would not have gotten that. (laughs) I mean, he's people that have been talking about these last six starts from Robbie Ray, this 49 strikeouts to one walk, have been kind of comparing him to Corbin Burns because that's what Burns and really Garrett Cole too, but Garrett Cole is a bona fide top three pitcher in baseball for going on four years now. Corbin Burns is kind of the new guy to the top starting pitcher conversation. So Robbie Ray's his performance over the last six starts has been compared to this, this newcomer to the top starting pitcher conversation, Corbin Burns. Um, You know, if Robbie Ray can keep this up, I don't think that he's going to be as good as Corbin Burns but he will certainly have the same skill set and can be a Corbin Burns light quote unquote, if you will. So I think that you have a good thing on your hands and uh, yeah, Robbie Ray is my rising pitcher. I'll turn around and lead us off for our fallers. My falling hitter is JT Realmuto. He is catcher and first base eligible in our league. And I'll say this one is mostly a case of injury because this is something that I found interesting and I, I didn't believe it when I first read it because I feel like he's been really disappointing this year, but every batted ball metric that I named for Chris Bryant as a career best is the exact same case for JT or Rio Muto. Every single one of those that I named for Chris Bryant being barrel percentage, expected batting average, expected slug, all of the on-base averages and his walk rate are all at career best for Rio Muto. But 
there's only so much room for excitement when the guy just can't seem to stay healthy. And Real Muto is currently on his second extended absence due to injury, this time with a bruised hand, after initially breaking his thumb during spring training. I have to say, before he was on my team, I was initially worried back in spring that a thumb injury in particular could linger for a guy that plays the position that he does of catcher and potentially sap the power production all year. Fortunately, that hasn't happened, but it's starting to get irritating to me as his owner, not having him last a full week, it seems, without an injury popping up. So again, a little bit of a different spin on the falling hitter value, mostly due to injury in this case, but JT Realmuto is my falling hitter. Jake, who did you have for your falling hitter? So I sort of took a similar approach, but it's a it, there there is some performance to back it up. I have Christian Yelich. And really for me, it comes down to his back injury and the fact right now he has he's throughout the season and in, in the limited time that he's that he's played, he's the highest strikeout rate of his career. Uh the back injury is something that is very worrying for me long term for him mostly long-term this, the rest of the season. I don't know if it'll carry over into next or not, but he apparently took him. He he took him once he came off the IL, he played one game. And then the the next day he was back on the aisle again. Apparently he was the one that went to, I don't know if it was his manager or what, but he went and said, something's not right here. I I don't think this is okay. And that's why they put him back on the IL. Him pulling himself basically and putting himself back on the IL is worries me a little bit. Uh, what's also worrying is the the strikeout rates at 35% up almost 4%, well, up over 4% left from last year. And it is by, it, it is the highest strikeout rate of his career. Uh, in addition to that, he's also has the low, has the lowest launch angle from his time in Milwaukee. It's actually back down to where it was when he played for Miami, when he was not nearly the power threat that he was in Milwaukee. So those combination of factors there, I, I still think that Yelich will be a good hitter, but I don't think he's going to be the first round hitter he has been in the past. So that's why uh, I picked him as my my faller for hitters. Yeah, it's interesting that you pick Yelich. I don't. There wasn't really one event that that kind of morphed my opinion into being what it is now. But I think I've become the low man on Christian Yelich. Maybe it just has to do with the fact that. You can't necessarily trust him to stay healthy and he's only eligible at left field versus when I drafted him a few years ago, I think I got him in the third round the year that he won the MVP award. I think he had both left field, center field, maybe even right field. He might've had triple eligibility, which obviously an elite player having multi-eligibility is a huge value in our league. But when you combine the injury concerns with him only picking up eligibility at one of our deepest positions, you know, in our keeper league, I think that that's just kind of soured my opinion of him as a player. I still admit he's a very elite player. He's just not necessarily a guy that I'm clamoring to get um, in terms of like draft day over some of the other guys that you could take in a similar spot. So I I think I agree with you there. Um, But I also kind of recognize the limitations of my opinion that there should be nuance to say Christian Yelich is still a very elite hitter. He's just not my cup of Joe personally. So I can see that for sure. My falling pitcher, since we're going to move on to the arms, was Sonny Gray. Um, With volume numbers probably suffering from missing the first week and a half of the season, Sonny Gray currently sits at starting pitcher number 111. Uh, The strikeouts have come as advertised so far this season, but it's actually been control issues popping up 
that have led to an inconsistent season so far for Sonny Gray. He has walked multiple batters in every start so far this season while walking three or more batters in just under half of his starts. Uh, this, has had, this has led to a ballooned 1.46 whip, which suggests in part to me that he may be overperforming just a little bit with an ERA currently sitting under four. And as I've briefly alluded to before, Sonny Gray's career has been very up and down, but usually his good and bad performances are grouped together in bunches. This year, his start to the season seems to reflect the larger picture of his career where you just don't know what you're going to get from him on a start to start basis. And that being the case, he's almost in pitcher purgatory where he's not a clear buy low. He's not a clear sell high because the signs don't really clearly point to him either rebounding or just completely bottoming out. And for that reason of him kind of being hard to value right now, or, and in that case, hard to trade, really, he is my pitcher faller. Jake, who do you have for your falling pitcher? Uh, so I chose someone that I own in the Dynasty League, and that is Blake Snell. Uh, really, 2018 is starting to feel like that was a long way away, which I think I, you could argue was the last time he was a true ace. Uh, this year, he's, he has the highest walk rate of his career. He's walking almost six batters per nine, which is really not what you want to see out of a starting pitcher. And uh, he, while he is striking hitters out, he's also not really – the combination of the strikeouts and the walks – making him incredibly inefficient. It's not like he's getting an early hook. He, he's just racking up an insane amount of pitches very early, and that's allowing him not to go deep into games. Uh, the, well, the workload isn't there, and now the per-inning production is slipping. I don't think this is a guy you can say is really an ace anymore. I mean, if the, he need, really the story with Snell was he kind of knew the workload wasn't going to be there because the Rays would always do what the Rays do and kind of pull him early. But now that the per inning production is suffering, what are we left with? We're just left with a pitcher that walks a lot of batters and doesn't go deep into games. It's not really a recipe for success in a points league. So that's that's why I would pick Blake Snell as my faller. I think the perception of him coming into this year has been and and in the past has been that he is he's an ace. He's a guy that you can rely on for your rotation. I don't think that's the case anymore. Yeah, that's Blake Snell. And I was just kind of reflecting since we talked about Yelich, we talked about Blake Snell. Uh, this is probably giving myself too much of a pat on the back, but thinking about some of the picks that I've made over the years, it's, it's interesting that, and I'm not even going to call it skill because like, I don't go into a draft thinking I'm going to get an MVP this, I'm going to get a guy that's going to win MVP this year at a way lower value than what, you know, if everybody knew he would win MVP that they would draft him at or same thing with Cy Young, but I drafted Blake Snell two or three years ago. He won AL Cy Young that year. I drafted Christian Yelich either the same year or the year after in the third round, and he won the MVP that year. And then with Bellinger, I drafted him in the third round the year that he won MVP. And it almost looks like – I'm not going to say he's going to win NL Cy Young because he has hefty competition in DeGrom and Corbin Burns, but it almost looks like Trevor Rogers is on his way to NL Cy Young competition – or contention this season. Unfortunately, it was the first time that I made the mistake of actually dropping one of those guys that proved to be a way bigger value than anticipated. But I'm not, I'm probably just working in too much of a pat of the pat on the back for myself here. But I did think it was interesting since we're talking about guy former MVPs, former Cy Young winners, that I I don't know. I just have this trend of I guess getting them at the right time. 
no championships to show for it. So it doesn't really mean much. It was just something that I was thinking about as you were talking about Blake Snell. But in recap, Jake's riser hitter was J.D. Martinez. Mine was Chris Bryant. Jake's rising pitcher was, remind me, Jake? Uh, Julio Urias. Julio Urias. Mine was Robbie Ray. My falling hitter was J.T. Realmuto. Jake's was Christian Yelich. My falling pitcher was Sonny Gray. Jake's was Blake Snell. So those are your risers and fallers player edition, all in our humble opinion, of course. Jake, give us your standout player of the week after I uh, jumped in for you last week and almost pulled a copycat, but also like an opposite day at the same time by naming Aaron Judge as player of the week while you were out after you named him player of the week before that. I, I do want to say that is that no joke. That's who I had as my player of the week when I was prepping. I had Aaron Judge. Perfect. Who's so your player of the job. week this week? All right, so I, I'm throwing Jerowin more love, and I'm picking Jesse Winker, who basically saw Jerowin's team struggling at the end and said, I got you. I'm going to go out and hit five home runs over a three-game series against Milwaukee to close the weekend. And he finished as the number two hitter over the, over the course of this matchup period. Uh, he's for real. I, I, I know that the comp has always been – with him uh, would, would be like kind of like a Joey Votto light. And he's sort of living up to that where he's, he's able to hit for contact. He's able to hit for power. The plate discipline's still good. I, I like Jesse Winker a lot going forward. I think he's, I think Jarwin's going to, going to be in good shape, keeping him for a couple of years if he chooses to go that route. Yeah, I'm sure he will given that Jesse Winker was drafted in the very last round of our draft and almost actually with the very last pick of the draft. He was the second to last pick of our entire draft and he is the number 8 overall hitter. So I have zero doubts that Jerwin is going to end up keeping Jesse Winker or I guess maybe potentially trading him in a huge trade to one of the sellers. But huge find for Jerwin and and good for him. Jesse Winker as I've mentioned before, has always been one of his guys. So that is Jake's standout player of the week. Let's jump into our matchup preview, looking ahead to week number eight. My best matchup, I'll lead us off, was JC versus Pine Run Market, JC versus Nick. This was a pretty easy pick for me as best matchup, as both teams are very hot. Both teams have actually gone three and one over the past two weeks, with both losses being of the head-to-head variety meaning they've gotten a little more unlucky than they have underperformed. And last week, both of these guys went 2-0. So beyond just being a matchup between two good teams, this matchup is particularly interesting because it is essentially a battle for second place in the East Division. It's really not because Nick would have to outscore JC by about 250 points in their head-to-head matchup in order to pass him in the standings. But... If Nick was able to deliver a zero, or I should say 0-2 loss to JC, they would be tied in record at 11-5, and assuming that Nick would pick up the win against the league median in that scenario. So I am excited to watch this matchup unfold. Jake, what did you have for best matchup heading into this week? I had Nate versus Mike, and I hope that this, this will be a another exciting one. Mike has really faced a gauntlet of a schedule, and he has come out Come out looking pretty good. Uh, I think in like if, if we were talking in the college football playoff terms, his uh, his resume looks pretty good at this point. He's got victories over me, Nate, and Courtney, and those are we as we know three of the top teams in the league. 
this is a this is is a this is I think this is going to be a very high scoring game. I saw that you have twelve starters, which I think is the most starts in a week I can ever remember seeing. Um, am I am I wrong on that? I thought you had twelve. I do have twelve, and Jake. Unless you have something more to say about this matchup, I'm actually going to tell you why I picked it for my worst matchup of the week. I'll go ahead. So, yeah, I mentioned earlier, I think it's really unlikely that Mike seats me as the third seed in the West Division, at least this week. Uh, This pick may come as a surprise because obviously Jake just mentioned he thinks it's going to be the best matchup. But this matchup comes at an absolutely brutal time for Mike. You know, he's getting a two-start week from Brandon Woodruff to cap off a six-start week in total. But I'm going to be getting two-start weeks from Kevin Gosman, Clayton Kershaw, Lance Lynn, John Means, and Max Scherzer. Not to mention, I'm going to get two more starts out of my bullpen and Alex Wood and Cody Petit to cap off a 12-start week in total. Now, in fantasy, anything is possible. We all know that. But I think it would be just ludicrous to pick Mike in this matchup. That kind of difference in volume where I have twice the number of starts that Mike does from the guys that I do is just too much to overcome 99 times out of 100. So I think that this is going to be a high-scoring matchup. Like you said, I think I picked the over in Jordan's sportsbook this week. But I do not think that it's going to be close. Who do you have as your worst matchup, Jake? I have Courtney versus Eddie. And uh, I, I don't have a whole lot for this one. Just I don't think it's going to turn out. I don't think it's going to turn out much differently than last time. Eddie, to, I think to win this one, Eddie would have to have a pretty big volume advantage. And as it stands right now, I believe Courtney has, has more pitchers. And the difference in games for hitters is really, it's, it's not that much to make a difference. So I, I can't see this ending differently than last time. Sure, that pick makes sense. Matchup predictions, Jake. I am now 24 and 12. You missed last week and we were unfortunately not able to get your pick. So you are sitting at 20 and 10. So we actually have the same win percentage 24 and 12, 20 and 10. JC went 3 and 3 last week. So he is sitting at 500. And uh, we will obviously bring his record back into the fold if and when he ever comes back to join us as a guest host again. So for this week, we have, I'll just lead us off with the matchup that we, I don't want to say disagreed on, but you think it's going to be a a good matchup, presumably because you probably expect it to be closer than I do. I expect it to not be a great matchup because I think it's not going to be close. Number one contender versus Big Money Mike. Jake, who do you have winning this matchup? Uh, I, like, like you kind of alluded to earlier, it's, it, I can't pick against the volume advantage that you have. That's kind of the doubling up like that is probably, is probably the largest advantage I think I've ever seen with starters in a week. So I, I'm going to pick you. As am I. Uh, no slight to Mike. I just, let's, let's put it this way. I'm not a betting man. I'd put the house on this matchup. So... Cleveland White Males versus weak pullout hitter Brendan versus Sam. I have Brendan winning this matchup, as I usually do, I guess, so that's really no surprise. What did you have, or who do you have as the winner of this one? I also have Brendan in this one. I'm, until Sam shows me otherwise, I don't, think I, can, I don't think I can pick him. Yeah, interestingly enough, I was kind of perusing Jordan's sportsbook spreadsheet that he has for us to 
to pick from. And I think Sam is favored in this matchup, according to his personal sports book. I thought that was really interesting. And I thought it kind of made for an easy pick of Brendan covering the spread because I think that he'll win outright. But yeah, interesting thing to note there. That's the interesting thing about the sports book, though. Mm-hmm. Like the fan tracks projections really like Sam's team a lot. I was discussing this with Jordan because we were kind of looking at how the projections do for certain teams. Mm-hmm. They always project Sam pretty high. I, I, I still think his team is good. It's just, I, I don't know. It's just his, he always seems to underperform. I think the projections still, they all really like it. They, they like his team almost every week. What did you think of my. I'll call it a surprise inclusion of Sam in the top three offenses from last week's episode. You agree with that? Disagree with that? I don't know if I disagree with, I mean, I think he's, he's around like the three, four, I I guess the three, four range. That seems about right. Like I still like his team. I just, I can't even say he's getting unlucky because he's scored low almost every week. It's just, I don't know what's, what's going on here. Yeah, I guess I guess we'll see if his team figures it out. The third matchup that we have for the week is JC versus Pine Run Market. Jake, who do you have one in this one? All right, so this is my upset pick of the week. I think that Nick is going to continue is going to continue his hot streak and his and the Cinderella story, and I think he's going to knock off JC this week. I come on the opposite side, and it's not because I don't believe in Nick's team. It is very clearly a legitimate contender, despite me saying that it was overperforming even at kind of the mid-ranges of pitching points and hitting points last week. Like, it's clear that whatever the it factor is that maybe like a guy like Brendan brings to fantasy baseball, Nick must have that same it factor because his team keeps performing really well every single week. However... JC has proven to be up there right there with Courtney really as like a clear uh, top one to two team in the league, just by way of how many points he puts up on a weekly basis. It's always like high two hundreds or even over 300. So I can't, I can't really pick against JC until he puts together, you know, maybe two or more clunkers in a row. So I got JC winning this one. The next one we probably both agree on, Gone Forever versus Team C Deemer. I have Courtney winning. Presumably you have the same? Yes. Okay. The fifth matchup we have, Jake's Fantasy Baseball Team versus Team Positivity. I'd be surprised if we didn't agree on this one as well. I have you winning the matchup. Did you have the same? I did. And our last matchup of the week, again, would be surprised if we differed in opinion here. Kenny Ross, Mercedes versus Team No Name. Scott versus Jordan. I have Jordan winning this matchup. Did you have I do the as same? Well. All right. So, Jake, I believe you owe us double the league history facts of the week this time around. What do you got for us? I did bring two two league history facts to the table this week. Uh, for the one for our first one, it is. I, I know that we've been talking about how good Courtney's team is all, has been all year but I don't think we've realized how good it actually has been. She right now is averaging 321.9 points per game. And that is second all time for any team that we've had in this league. And the, all those teams that we, that she's going up against, those were all teams from a 10 team league. So I think that should tell you just how good her team has been this year. Yeah, that is certainly impressive. We'll see if it holds up over the whole season. I mean, even if it doesn't, that's still really impressive because like you mentioned, 12-team league, the player talent is spread out more. 
um, versus a 10-team league. So even over a third of a season, that is definitely very impressive. Your second league history fact of the week, Jake. All right, I wanted to throw, since we we both picked against Mike this week, I did want to throw one history fact out there, which is with his win last week, Mike has now evened the all-time series against me at two games apiece. And since Mike joined in 2019, we now are even at two games apiece with, uh, yeah, well, nothing more to add there. <laughs> yeah, that is the rubber match rivalry. I wouldn't have guessed. So good yeah, stuff. We won't, we won't get to we won't get to uh, have the have the tiebreaker unless he unless we line up for the divisions for either week nine or I'm trying to remember. I think it's the last week of the season. Something like that. Or, pretty late. Or maybe, or maybe the uh, maybe this is a championship game and that's the that's the rubber match. Wouldn't that be something? Yeah, certainly is possible. Mike has a strong team. Your record speaks for itself. We will see what happens. Let's uh, welcome everyone into week three of Jordy the General's weekly sportsbook segment. Take it away, Jordan. What is up, everyone? We're back for another week of the sportsbook. Cannot wait to get into this content. First, I'm going to give a couple previews of the matchups. I'm going to give my stay away game. Then after that, I'm going to get into my locks again. I, uh, I guarantee that I have some winners again this week for you all first i'm going to get into nate versus mike i think that's a very interesting matchup nate is favored by just under 40 points the total is 535 uh nate has a very very high number of pitchers this week uh i think that he definitely can cover this 40 points but it is a lot and if anyone can cover this uh large amount of points that nate has to cover it would be it would be Mike. Mike can definitely put up points with the best of them. So I'm actually staying away from the spread, and I'm just going to hammer the over the, in this one. 531 point, 535 points. I think that that's pretty low for both of these teams combined. I think both of them can do it. We've seen it in the past, and they're going to do it again this week. I got a stay away game this week as well. Um, it's my matchup versus Scott. Uh, spread is 40 points. Total is 500. 454 points although uh the spread we've seen scott struggle his first couple weeks in he although he's gone up against complete powerhouses i think that you know he's we've seen him struggle so maybe he'll have his big week this week uh where he shows up but also i'm just not confident in my team's ability to beat someone by 40 points so i'm staying away from that spread definitely the the total's low one of the lowest that we've seen if not the lowest 400 and 54 points, but I have not yet hit the over, and Scott has not yet hit the under. Although he's been carried to the over on a couple occasions, I'm really not feeling comfortable in any of these, the spread or the total, so I'm actually staying away from this one. Um, Going to get into my locks. I I went 3-2 and two last week. Sunday Night Baseball screwed me up. I had the 5-0 uh, and o week. Uh, firmly grasped, but unfortunately, Eddie with the backdoor cover against Justin and then Courtney and Scott barely hitting the over as well. So I was kind of upset about that. However, I can't be upset in my 20 and 10 record. Uh, like I said before, and I've said the last couple of weeks, I give winners on this segment. You want to ride with me? I will not steer you wrong. First, I'm going to get into my favorite. I have Jake minus 37 points against Jerwin. 
Although Jake is 0-2 in his last two and Jerwin is 2-0 in his last two, uh, I really think that's been to the been due to the quality of opponents. I think that's going to change this week, and I think Jake covers this pretty, pretty easily. He's not gonna he's not gonna lay an egg two weeks in a row. Underdog, we've said it week in and week out. Nick plus four and a half points. Uh, he covered again last week. He's six and zero as an underdog. He's an underdog here again. He goes up against a fierce competitor in Justin, but business as usual. Nick rides seven and zero undefeated against the spread. I got my over. Courtney and Eddie over 498 points. We saw it last week against Scott. Courtney can basically just will herself to the over if she wants to. And I think she's going to want to again this week, going into the crossover week, putting up a statement game. I think that Eddie's also going to put up uh, a good amount of points here. I think they're easily going to get over this. I don't even think it's going to be close. We have the under. I have Jake versus Jerwin as my under. 517 points. We saw Jerwin go completely off last week, cracking into the top six for the first time this year. Do I think it continues? Uh, no. However, Jake also last week had his first uh, his first loss against the median, but that won't continue either. But I still just don't. I think that um, I think that's going to be a big drop off game. I still I think the 517 points is a lot. I didn't take in the under in this one. Next, we have the median. Uh, after after losing a couple weeks ago, the median the median went back under again this week by a, a pretty decent amount. So as usual, we're going to ride with that until it starts losing consistently. Uh, 400, 247 points. It will be under that. I guarantee it. So um, yeah, that's all I got this week. Like I said before, I'm going to come back five and a record. I'm going to improve my record to twenty five and ten. So, yeah, I think, I think it's going to be another great week. I'm excited about it. We've got the crossover week next week. I'll catch up with you all then. All right, back to you guys. That was Jordy the General's weekly sports book. Thank you, Jordan. Let's go ahead and close out our episode this week, Jake, with a little bit of news and notes. Luis Severino, who was uh, actually recently t- traded in our league from Scott to Mike, faced a group of hitters, including top prospect Jason Dominguez, at the Yankees player development complex in Tampa Bay, Florida on Thursday. It marked the first time that the right-hander saw swings in the box since his Tommy John surgery in February, 2020 manager, Aaron Boone said that he was told the session went really well. And that Severino was clocked up to 96 miles per hour with his fastball. The Yankees have outlined a really vague summer return to the big leagues for Severino, which could be anywhere from June to August. But I ask you, Jake, even in the vague timeline, are you able to read through it and tell me how much of an impact do you think Severino will make this year? I think he'll be he'll be good on a per start basis, but I don't I'm not expecting him to be just this this bulldog workhorse where he's going to be pitching like six or seven innings every single time out. I'm not I'm not counting on that at all. You made a bold prediction that Tariq Skubal would be a top 25 starting pitcher on a per-start basis before the season. Now, that may be out of the question at this point for Skubal unless he really turns things around, but do you think that that's a realistic expectation for Luis Severino once he starts or once he comes back? Yeah, yeah, I think he could be top 25, but I think that that's, I think that that's where 
where his ceiling for this year would be. Like, I don't like if he would have said top 20, I don't think that that's, that would be the case. Probably strictly due to volume would be my guess. Right. Yeah. Yeah. It would be mostly volume. I don't, he might be rusty at first. I, I like, I think the abilities there, I just, it's not just the Tommy John surgery. Like Severino has not been a very durable guy throughout his career. And I could see the Yankees taking it slow with him, not just this year, but next year as well. Sure, that's fair. Moving on to the other side of the ball, Keston Hira said he has made no major swing changes. Some of his struggles, of course, seem to be mental in that case. It took him six full games in 2021 before he recorded his first hit of the season. And that's part of the reason why everyone around the Brewers and some scouts from different teams really had a hard time detailing why Keston Hira had struggled, but they all do bet on a rebound. And he seems primed to do just that as entering this past Friday, Keston Hira was batting 407, going 11 for 27 with six doubles, a home run, five RBI, six runs scored, and a 1225 on base plus slugging percentage in seven games with AAA Nashville of the Brewers organization. Jake, are you betting on a major league rebound for Keston Hira? Uh, I'm going to say no, but I think that this, this stretch where he is coming up just now, I think that this is pretty much going to be what defines probably what's well, definitely going to define mine, but probably everybody else's opinion of him going forward. I think it's really important to see how he does here because if he comes up and struggles again, I mean, it, there didn't seem to be a lot of hope with him before he looked completely lost. And if there's not some improvement, it's going to be hard for me to bet that he's ever going to be an impact player for fantasy. Yeah. And the one stat that I actually didn't mention that was not much of a change from when he was struggling before he got sent down was his strikeout percentage remained at a pretty robust, like 34% or somewhere around there while he was down there with AAA Nashville. So that yeah, I also saw that. I, that's one of that's part of the reason I'm not yeah. I'm not betting on a rebound. The rest is very encouraging, but unfortunately, it's going to take a pretty wild performance from Keston here in the major leagues if he's striking out 34 percent of the time for him to be fantasy relevant. The second question I have, Jake, might he just be what some consider a quote unquote quad A player, where He's way too good for minor league baseball, but he just stinks in major league baseball. Yeah, that very well might be the case. I mean, it's if there's something that's going to sink him, it's going to be the strikeouts, and you can't get those under control. I don't, I don't think he's ever going to be a fantasy relevant player. Sure, I, I do agree with what you said that that this stretch after him being promoted um, from being sent down to tr- to try to figure things out, this is probably going to define you know, the opinion on him as a fantasy player for the next, I'll say, two years at the minimum. So we will see what happens with Keston Hira. Jake, I'm going to ask you to stick with me here because this is something a little bit different that I wanted to bring to the show just because I thought it was interesting. We've all been surprised to watch the San Francisco Giants season unfold, seeing their two aces, Kevin Gosman and Alex Wood, lead the way. But might they have a third in the woodworks? Tyler Beattie a starter for the Giants rehabbing from Tommy John surgery, has tweaked his arsenal and added velocity during his rehab campaign. Part of it was using analytics to understand the strongest weapons in what had been a four-pitch repertoire for him. 
and his contact percentage was lowest with his curveball and changeup, while his slider had been a pretty functional strikeout pitch. But throwing that slider might have been leading to less spin and consistency with his four seams, his four seam fastball. So what he ended up doing was cutting out the slider and paring it down to three pitches. And these changes are already leading to an uptick in velocity. Tyler Beatty says his fastball sat 96 to 98 miles per hour in his three rehab appearances thus far. And although the Giants didn't have trackman data for his three inning start Saturday against the Dodgers AAA affiliate in Oklahoma City, Beatty did say he was pleased with how the ball was coming out of his hand. Now, I don't know that this is actually a third ace, or I should say, I don't think that this is actually a third ace developing for the Giants. I'm just kind of, you know, posing it that way to sound interesting. But I do think that this was an interesting enough piece of news to share with the rest of the league for us to kind of watch it as a case study of how analytics and pitch mix changes can potentially lead to breakouts for pitchers in real life and in fantasy. I thought that this was a pretty safe case to kind of share and spoil, quote unquote, since BD is only eligible at starting pitcher in our fantasy league and realistically has a very slim chance at fantasy relevance. But who knows? Keep an eye on Tyler Beattie. Uh, I did think that these analytically driven changes will be something that will be interesting to keep an eye on because, you know, let's just say Tyler Beattie, a no-name who has never had an established track record, is able to turn into something. I think it would be cool for us to see, like, hey, these are the kind of changes or these are the kind of pieces of news that you should be on the lookout for during the season to potentially identify really early breakouts before they happen. So thought that was interesting. Um, anything to add, Jake? Yeah, I would encourage everybody to, to just, I guess, for lack of a better phrase here, just dig more into pitching data. It, it's, I always have a lot of fun doing it. It's just trying to identify breakouts. Okay, this guy's off to a good start. Did he actually make a change? Is he just getting lucky? Like, if you look at stuff like a pitch mix, is, is he, how does he change it? Did he change anything? Is he throwing his better, like, or, or a guy where, he's struggling, right? You could see, okay, what changes maybe could he make that would make him better? But there's so many things with pitching that can lead to drastically different results. Like even just a less than a mile an hour added to your fastball that can have huge results where you're putting your fastball, your, your approach when you're, when you're uh, on the mound, like if you're, if you're doing fastballs, high fastballs, low, where you're putting them, that matters. Uh, how much spin they have on them, uh, like just just the different movement. Like a lot of that stuff matters. And it's very interesting to kind of dig into and see if you can predict the the breakouts before they happen. Because I think that I think that you you can if you know what to look for. And it's always really interesting to try to figure out like is this guy, is this guy for real? Should I should I add him? And then it's really rewarding when you're right. So I wouldn't I would encourage people to to look into that. I've always had a lot of fun doing that. Pitching is just awesome. Pitching is awesome. Pitching is also very hard. Uh, I think Alex Wood is, again, not this is totally not trying to toot my own horn just because he's on my team, but I think he's a perfect example of analytics matter, but pitching can also be very hard. Uh, before he broke out with the Dodgers a couple years ago, he had never had an established track record. Then he came to the Dodgers, and I believe they changed the arm slot that he released his pitches on. Is that right, Jake? I think that's uh, what coincided with his initial breakout was them changing the arm slot with which he released his pitches. 
Uh, you might be right on that. I don't remember exactly. I'm nearly positive that that was the change that he made to initially break out with the Dodgers. And I'm sure you remember, Jake, because you were the first guy on him in our fantasy league like two or three years ago when he initially broke out. He was like a top three relief pitcher in baseball because he had relief pitcher eligibility as a starting pitcher for the Dodgers. And he had a, an amazing season. And then over the last two years, he's been pretty bad with the Dodgers one year and then the Cincinnati Reds the year later. Um, and now, of course, back he's back to fantasy relevance and not just being relevant, but being a very good pitcher. So you see he's kind of like this nice embodiment of if you, as a pitcher, incorporate analytics or something data-driven into the way that you approach pitching, like I mentioned, it was the arm slot. So he was releasing the ball higher with the Dodgers than he ever had been before in his career. It led to a breakout. But then after having an amazing season, he stunk for a year and a half. Pitching is really hard. But now he's kind of refound that success with the San Francisco Giants. And you have to imagine uh, that that success was refound through diving into what was causing him to perform really poorly after finding a lot of success with the LA Dodgers. So it is very fascinating, as Jake said. And again, Tyler Beattie, maybe nothing, but you know, in the case that he is something, it'll be really cool to say like, Hey, as a league, we saw this guy who nobody had ever heard of. He had no track record, but we identified this piece of news really early. And then he actually became somewhat decent. That would be cool to say. So I did want to bring it up here. Yeah. One last thing I'll, I'll say is if you are wanting to start looking into these different pitching analytics, a good place to start is to see guys like Tyler Glassdown and Garrett Cole, look at the data for them when they were on the pirates and then look at the data for them the, the year that they left, because you can see the different pitch mix changes that they made uh, where they were spotting their pitches. The pirates like to throw a lot of sinkers. They like to th- like to keep the ball down. And then when they left, it was a lot of fastballs up. They were throwing their breaking pitches more. The sinkers were almost entirely gone. That's a good place to start if you're wanting to look look into, like, what should I be looking at for this sort of, if I want to identify these breakouts and all that sort of thing. If you're just trying to look for, like, I guess that's, that's what I've seen where there's been a pretty stark change is pitchers that have left the Pirates when they almost completely changed their, their approach to pitching. But if, they, if you're going to if you're going to start looking at into into this stuff, I think that would be a good place to start just so you, you can kind of see what to look for. Yeah. And you can almost go in circles with this whole conversation about pitching analytics, because you mentioned that the Pirates like to throw their philosophy, at least with the old pitching coach, was throw a lot of sinkers, a lot of two seam fastballs down in the zone. Something that maybe everybody doesn't know is that ground ball pitchers tend to throw a lot lower in the zone more often than most pitchers. Because if you think about it, if you're throwing lower in the zone, the idea is that when you are inducing contact, the hitter, their swing is getting over top of the ball. So they're going to drive it down into the ground there. You're going to induce more ground balls. Um, You're going to see more contact because it's easier for them to kind of adjust their swing to swing a little bit lower than to reach a, a fastball that's higher than the zone, which is what you see a lot of strikeout pitchers use. But again, even though you're kind of inducing more contact, theoretically, it should be contact that's staying on the ground. Because again, if the pitch is low, the hope is that the bat is going to be higher than the pitch, i.e. the launch angle is going to be going downward or a negative launch angle. 
So that's just something that you mentioned, Jake, the race here. It's the old pitching coach for the pirates. He, he wanted them to throw a lot of two seamers, a lot of sinkers low in the zone. That was their approach. Pitch to contact. Let's induce weak contact. Let's induce ground balls. Uh, it doesn't work for guys that are meant to be strikeout upside aces like Garrett Cole, like Tyler Glass now, like Joe Musgrove. That's kind of why you saw those guys leave. And, and since since then, the Pirates pitching coach, Ray Search, has been fired and replaced. So I'm hoping that a new philosophy is on the horizon for the Pirates and they realize the mistakes that they made. But that's kind of like why you see um, those guys have such stark breakouts from the time that they were wearing a Pirates uniform to today. And, and that's just another, I mentioned Alex Wood is a perfect embodiment of, of how hard pitching is, how analytical it can be. The Pirates organization is another embodiment of that. They have one philosophy. It doesn't work for guys who are meant to be totally different pitchers. But when these guys get traded to organizations that embrace analytics, rather than trying to mold every single arm into their philosophy, uh, you see good results. You saw it with Glass. Now you saw it with Cole. You saw it with Musgrove. I wouldn't be surprised if Jamison Tyone is somehow a breakout pitcher over the next year and a half compared to what he was with the Pirates. So he's already a different pitcher because his, his strikeouts are way up. His it's again, it's just his, his approach is different and it's, it's noticeable, yeah. but I, I mean, I could go on forever with this. I, I don't know how you look at how you see guys that the stuff that Garrett Cole and Tyler glass now have, you're like, you're going to pitch to contact. I don't know how you would think that's a good idea. Yeah, to, I'll say to Ray Searich's credit, he was able to turn, he was able to work with re- reclamation project, projects, J.A. Happ, A.J. Burnett, Francisco Liriano. He was able to turn old pitchers who were mediocre at best into pretty good serviceable pitchers, but he was never able to turn young upside of an ace into an actual ace. And that's what wins championships. It's not like, sure, having a, an old guy come in and you're able to get him on the cheap and turn him into a good pitcher, that's helpful to a championship, but you're not going to win. The Pirates were never going to win a World Se- I don't. I don't know the last time a team won a World Series without a true ace caliber pitcher. You just need those guys. And so hopefully that is a change that is, you know, is on the horizon, like I said. Who knows? The Pirates don't really have an ace upside pitcher pitching in their major league rotation right now. So time will tell when the young guys like Quinn Priester come up, but uh, hopefully that changes here for good. Let's end the episode on a different note, both on the opposite side of the ball, but also with a super relevant player, as opposed to a guy like Tyler Beatty talking about Juan Soto. Juan Soto has been hitting a ton of ground balls and he's trying to fix it. Dating back to the beginning of an 11-4 loss to the Diamondbacks on May 15th, 15 of the 20 balls that Soto had put into play entering this past Friday had been grounders. Uh, Not that it's held back his numbers. Three of those five games have been multi-hit games, and he still ranks near the top of the league in expected batting average, expected slugging percentage, strikeout rate, and a host of other stat cast statistics, but he is struggling to get the ball off the ground since returning from the injured list on May 4th, and his average launch angle sits at just 0.6 degrees this season after last Wednesday. Jake, are you at all worried that the shoulder injury that landed him on the injured list is playing a part in this change in batted ball tendencies? Uh, That would be my guess. Anytime that part of your body is 
sort of compromised. I mean, I'm sure that his shoulder is, isn't, you know, I'm sure he's not in danger of blowing out his shoulder, but anytime a part of your body is a little weaker, you're, you're going to even, you're going to subconsciously change what you're doing, I guess, to compensate for that. So maybe he's, maybe his mechanics aren't quite as smooth because he has to change something. So his shoulder doesn't hurt quite as much, but he's, but it's something that he can't really, not really something that he's consciously trying to do. It's just something that's happening, but he actually did struggle with hitting a lot of ground balls earlier in his career. And he was able to fix that. He's, he's an elite enough of a hitter that I, I don't really, I don't think that this is going to be a long-term problem for him. I, I have all the faith in the world that he'll, he'll come out of it and be the guy that Brendan drafted first overall. Yeah, I think so too. But let's just say at the end of the season that this, I don't even want to say at the end of the season, let's just say a month and a half, two months from now, this seems to be a recurring theme. I think it, it is fair to say to kind of maybe pinpoint back to this moment that, oh, it was probably the shoulder injury. It was probably something that changed with his swing when he got hurt and maybe just like a, a bad habit that he formed with his swing to try to protect the shoulder. I think by season's end, he definitely figures it out, like you said. But, you know, just in case it the trend continues for another month or two months, I think that it's probably fair to to pinpoint it to this issue. And hopefully the Nationals see that too, if it's a continuing issue, that they just say, hey, we got to get his shoulder right. Let's sit him down for two weeks so that he can get back to being, you know, one of the best players in baseball. I'm sure that they would do that if measly fantasy players like you and I can can kind of try to pinpoint it to that issue as well. So... That is our news and notes, and that is a wrap on episode nine of our Best Player Wins Fantasy Baseball podcast. I do have a quick announcement, not that it's a major announcement, but we are undetermined on whether there will be an episode released next week. Jake and I will both be out of town during the weekend when we would normally do prep, and so basically we would either have to release an episode super late in the week or potentially delegate it out to two other hosts which we are considering doing, but again, totally undecided. So the next episode is to be determined whether it'll be next week or the week after. If it's next week, it won't be Jake and I on. Um, We will be back two weeks from now, however. So if anything, we will definitely see you for our week 10 episode, Um, whether that is episode 10 or episode 11 is again, to be determined, but thank you all for listening. And we will see you next time. E-